Hey everybody, thanks for tuning back into the Catch My Drift podcast. It's your host Matt Kalmus and today with me I got uh, Jen Biederman. Jen is a St. Mary's University professor here in Winona and she's here on to tell us what trout eat. So with me today, I've got uh, Jen Biederman and her husband and, I guess, uh, field assistant <laughs> Trevor. <laughs> I, uh, I first met Trevor um, a couple years ago. I think we were on a little ice fishing get-together with, uh, with some mutual friends, and we had about 30 tip-ups set out throughout the, <laughs> on the ice, and we were throwing footballs around, grilling brats, having beers, and just having a heck of a time. I think we caught a few pike that day. We did, yeah. yeah. There were some, some decent ones. Some pretty nice ones. Yeah, <clears throat> one of our friends, Kevin, uh, his boy was with, too, and uh, he got Otis. to... Yeah, yeah Otis. He Otis got, had a great time. He did. He got to reel some in and grin and ear to hear, I think, the whole entire day. <laughs> but anyway... Um, I guess one of the reasons, selfishly, I wanted to have you on here, Jenny, was because I'm a trout fisherman myself. So, uh, and Dusty, um, who was a, a former guest on the podcast, uh, kind of called you out and said he wanted to hear hear what you had to say. So, um, I guess why don't you start us off explaining what you do for a living, and uh, I guess explain your position. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so, I'm a professor of biology at St. Mary's University and this is actually my second year at the university. I spent, oh goodness, like 12 years at Winona State prior to that. So um, the Driftless area is definitely home. Uh, What drew me to the Driftless area is I actually went to college here at St. Mary's and then um, went off to graduate school, met my husband who was very much, he very much wanted to stay here and so I happily moved back um, and then um, got my job at Winona State and went back to graduate school and got my PhD and and pretty quickly I think I think we came to the conclusion that we wanted to make this area home yep. for a lot of reasons other than trout is just a great place to um, raise a family and and work and so I I uh, work at St Mary's and I uh, teach biology to undergraduates and so it's it's a great position because I spend a lot of time outside with students and. We do a lot of field work um, with students right on campus, and so we've got a trout stream that that flows right through campus and the Mississippi River not far away, and so um, so yeah. I can't think of a better spot for kids to come and learn. I mean, um, for those of you, of course, your friend Dylan uh, Blumentritt mm-hmm. is, is a good friend. He was on the podcast earlier too, um, but just explaining this, uh, and we were talking too the kids that come here i mean i hope they realize how lucky they are i mean such a beautiful area they i think they do so when i was a student here in like the in um like 2000 i graduated in like 2005 there were quite a few um students on campus that were drawn to saint mary's for the obvious reasons of like fishing and opportunities Mm -hmm. to go hunting and um but i think it's actually even more so now i'm just shocked every day i feel like i meet a student that's said oh yeah i came here because there's a trout stream or the mississippi's right there that's good and so yeah it's it's definitely a draw for students and i hope it continues to be because i think um we have an environmental biology program that really i think takes advantage of our location and Mm -hmm. and we would like more students in it 
So yeah, it's a good spot to come. Mm-hmm. I know I looked at St. Mary's University as a high school student. Um, I did an overnight stay, and they don't have nursing uh, nursing program there, so that kind of ruled it out. But we do now. Oh, you do as of this year. Yes. Cool. First year. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> but I well, wish we would have had it then. Right. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a man. It's a neat spot. Um, so did I guess growing up, did you, I, I know talking with a few other people, you know, Dylan and Dusty, they, they kind of gave me a little background about you. Your dad was a St. Mary's University mm-hmm. professor as well, and he taught biology as well? Mm-hmm. Okay. He did. So he actually, he was, an, uh, both my parents are alums of the university. So my mom came from St. Paul. My dad was a Chicago kid. And okay. so they were both pulled from the city by... Um, Christian brothers who run the university also ran their high schools and so they brought them to campus and oh gosh they I don't think they really ever looked back they they loved the campus and mm-hmm. um, I actually grew up in green right outside of Green Bay and so I didn't grow up in Winona but we would come here every summer for a like a reunion of my parents friends and we would stay on campus so it was always a really special place growing up I never imagined I would live here but it happened that my dad got a job teaching at St. Mary's, which was kind of like his dream job when I was, oh gosh, 18, like right when I graduated high school. So it was good timing and Mm -hmm. we all moved here and I never thought I'd actually go to school at St. Mary's. I was thinking I wanted to go like to school in like the South or like, you know, somewhere warm. And then I kind of, I went to visit a few campuses. Actually one campus I wanted to go to was in this, in the Twin Cities. And then at that time, I kind of knew that I wanted to study environmental biology or something related to ecology. And um, I went to, to visit a school in the Twin Cities, and I was asking them some questions about, you know, like, what do you, when do you guys get out to the field? Like, what do you do? And they're like, oh, you know, in this class, we might, you know, we'll, we'll have two afternoons in the semester where we'll, like, get on buses and we'll, like, go out to this place. And... I went over to St. Mary's and they're like, oh yeah, we, we're out, <laughs> we're out in the field, like almost every lab course, like class during a lab, we are out in the field. And awesome. I was like, that was hard to beat. So I, yeah. I stuck around. Awesome. That's cool. sounds like a perfect class or a perfect, you know, uh, program. Yeah. So you kind of, you know, your dad was uh, a professor too. Is mm-hmm. it, is it kind of neat to follow in his footsteps? And it is, it's kind of intimidating sometimes because he was very like, <laughs> was very productive he did a lot of research and he was very good at what he did very smart and so I never again I never imagined that I would be at St. Mary's teaching it just kind of things kind of fell into place that way kind of unexpectedly and sometimes I feel like I'm kind of standing on the shoulders of a giant and I hope that I'm making him proud but (laughs) but it's um it's a it's cool I love it I'm sure you are it's Mm -hmm. uh yeah it's always it's always tough to fill shoes of you know people before you but Mm-hmm. I think uh, I think if you're if you if you're following your heart and knowing mm-hmm. what you're you know proud of what you're doing, I think uh, you'd probably be making him proud too. So mm-hmm. that's that's cool. Um, I knew I knew early on my dad's a civil engineer, and watching him do all the homework he did, <laughs> <laughs> I knew early on I didn't want to be a civil engineer. Oh. So. <laughs> oh my! Well, I have to say my dad made this job look a lot easier than it is. It is. Oh, it's a lot of work, but yeah. but it's fun. Yeah. And it's cool you get to spend time outside, too. Mm-hmm. That's neat. Not everybody. Trevor Trevor's a, a fellow nurse as well that works at the hospital I work. And I, I know sometimes myself, I'm looking out the one window that we have. <laughs> yeah, we don't have windows in the operating room. No. So I, don't, I have no idea what it's like outside. I have to ask, call Jenny and ask, what uh, yeah. what's it doing out there? <laughs> 
yeah, it can, it can be tough. But so I, uh, I guess kind of getting into the meat and potatoes of the podcast here, um, a wildlife biologist, what do they, what do they do? If, if, so let's say um, I'm coming down and I signed up for one of your classes. What am I in for? Oh, goodness. You're in for a lot of time outside usually, which is great. Um, so I, so I'm, I would describe myself as more of like a freshwater ecologist, which is, you know, like an offshoot of wildlife ecology. Um, so I teach courses that are sort of fall under the umbrella of freshwater ecology and conservation and sustainability. And we actually also have a, a sort of a true wildlife ecologist on our staff too, who studies like mammals and climate change and things like that. Um, so for me, so I've, Lately, I've been mostly focusing on trout streams and cold water streams of the Driftless area. Um, in the past, I've also done work on tropical streams, and that's kind of where I thought my career would go, is working in tropical areas. And again, meeting a boy from the Midwest who wanted to stay in the Midwest, <laughs> I knew I had to kind of shift my focus to a different taxa or a different system. And um, when I was working on, or when I was um, looking for a PhD program, I found an advisor at the University of Minnesota, and he was willing to take me on into his lab, but he said the one criteria I had for a fellowship that was available that I was I could be eligible for was that I had to work on a cold water stream. Because when I went to him, like usually for graduate school, if you're gonna find a position in graduate school, you have to have some ideas in your head of what you wanna do research on. And I remember to my advisor, to Bruce, I was like, I was pitching him ideas about like, sturgeon and paddlefish and you know warm water species and he's like no you gotta he's like if you want to come work with me and and get this money he's like you got to work on cold water streams and that's when I kind of switched focus and it's been great I mean I love it so I've been mostly focusing on cold water streams for like the last 10-11 years okay cool so and your students, I mean, they learn all about trout if they didn't know what one was before. Absolutely, and... yes. I mean, so when I was at Winona State, I didn't, I didn't have a position where I got to do a lot of aquatic stuff. So I did a lot more like conservation and general biology. And so this is my second year at St. Mary's, and during COVID, it's been a little wonky with kind of getting into boats and you know doing field work. It's opening up a lot now, but like, so last spring I taught a fisheries course, which should have been taught in the fall or should have been scheduled in the fall but that's another story but um so that's a course where we would we'd go out you know into the river into the backwaters lakes streams we would just try to sample and explore like every different type of aquatic ecosystem that we have um, within the vicinity of campus um and we didn't get to do that because we couldn't be in boats together (laughs) because we didn't (laughs) have the social distancing um but yeah so we spend a lot of time out in the field so lately we've been doing a lot of work um in the creeks so we work in garvin or in gilmore creek which runs through campus quite a bit and then also we've been spending some time in garvin brook Uh, we did some water sampling this week at lake winona and the mississippi river cool and garvin brook is a pretty special uh creek to you guys i mean it's right out your back door yeah which is pretty neat yeah you guys get to fish and Mm -hmm. your daughters get to fish and tromp around in the creek and that's probably pretty cool for them and we actually had some some stuff out for her students um she's doing a predation project which is kind of neat we put trout in the water tethered to see what will come in prey on them cool and then use a game cam and have that on there and so we've got some pretty cool footage of herons what else do we have oh like mink and oh yeah there's sweet 
What, uh, I guess, like I mentioned earlier, to, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here is because, you know, selfishly, I'm a trout fisherman <laughs> myself, and we're always looking for the next bite, you know, what, you know, the next hatch or, you know, what are these trout, you know, the next hottest fly, what are these totally. trout going to want to eat so I can have a better day? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so I guess, what do, what do, what do trout eat? So, well, you're in luck. I've spent, like, hundreds of hours <laughs> digging through trout stomachs so what will so what i did for my dissertation is we looked at we were trying to look at patterns and and how trout grow during different times of the year um, across southeastern minnesota so we were looking at between six and twelve streams um, in southeastern minnesota and sampling trout you know all throughout the year and then we would um after we collected the trout how how would you collect oh, them? Good question. So we use electrofishing, okay, um, which is where you um, we use the backpack electrofisher, which sends um, a current of electricity through the water that stuns the the trout, and so they kind of float to the surface. It doesn't kill them; it just stuns them, so that you can net them and put them in a bucket, and then they eventually kind of come back too. And so we would catch the trout, and we would shot we call it shocking the trout so we'd mm -hmm. shock the trout and then we would pump their stomach so we just basically would flush them with water kind of squirting them with like down their um mouth or down their digestive tract with a garden hose and then they would regurgitate everything that they ate and then mm -hmm. we would bag it up bring it to the lab and analyze it um and so we did that oh gosh i think i did that for like four years and so i spent a lot of time in the lab digging through stomach contents or gut <laughs> contents trout throw up yes <laughs> exactly it'd be all over the house it was, it was awesome so i could just say oh what's what's on the bike well, today for, for part of that <laughs> time i was on. i was working from so i kind of we converted our our kitchen into a lab because i had a couple kids while i was in graduate school so it was useful to be able to work at home at night when they were sleeping and so we kind of made a makeshift lab out of the kitchen but um so yeah, so I I sorted through a lot of stomachs. Um, then we would put the drift nets out, yeah, catch drift to see what's available. Okay, as well. So that's yeah. So that's another component of the work that we did is we wanted to see what types of prey were available. So we would set out. So there's two types of prey that are typically available to trout in the stream. There's what we call the benthic prey, and the benthic prey. So the benthic area is basically the bottom of the stream, like the rocks and the crevices and all of that. And so a lot of the aquatic invertebrates like to hang out in those crevices and, and under the surface of rocks. So the benthos, we call those aquatic inverte invertebrates the benthos. So that's kind of one category of prey that's available to the trout. And then there's also drift. That's the other category. So drift can be like one of two things. Drift are the benthos or the benthic prey that become, or invertebrates that become dislodged like from the rocks mm -hmm. or maybe they're um they're dispersing and so they'll temporarily be drifting through the stream and then the trout will pick them up when they're kind of in the water column the other source of drift is our um, terrestrial insects that fall into the stream like especially toward late summer like you'll have like um grasshoppers and aphids and ants and all of the, those types of things falling into the stream drifting through the stream for trout to eat and so we set out nets that would help us quantify the drift. So the number of uh, invertebrates that were drifting through the stream, the diversity of types of drift. And then we also collected the benthic prey. So those, those prey that were like 
within those, like lodged within the rocks and the substrate. And so the reason we wanted to do that is because if we kind of paired looking at what was in their stomachs with what was available, we could also determine like, were the trout selecting for things? So were, there, were they being picky? So like, let's say there's tons of some invertebrate available in the, in the benthos. Is that, is that like sort of um, proportionately represented in their stomachs? Okay. And so that was something that we could kind of tell if they were picky or not. Um, and we found that they were picky. Sure. <laughs> and which is probably what you're interested in, like what were they selecting for? Yeah. So I'll tell you to start off. The, the thing that trout eat most in southeastern Minnesota are midges. Really? Are you familiar with midges? Yep, yep exactly. Yeah, so there's midges. Um, numerically and proportionally, they are by far in every stream we studied, they were the most dominant prey item. And so they're very little. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the larval form of the midge is very little but they're pretty nutritious. So if you look at like the caloric values of the different types of aquatic invertebrates, midges are, are up there. And so they're a, they're a good prey item for them, um, but they weren't selecting for them. Okay. Necessarily, I mean, they weren't going out of their way to eat the midges, they're just everywhere. Well, I would imagine, I mean, I've seen them, they're small. Tiny. Very small. I mean, we're talking, you know, for the, the fly fishermen listening, like a zebra midge, I mean, you'd tie like a size 22 or a size 20 zebra midge, and that's very small. Totally. Like a fingernail clipping. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And I would imagine that's probably pretty hard for a trout to see to go out of their way to eat it. Yeah, and so sometimes we think that maybe some of their ingesting them is like incidental. So like maybe they're eating something else, but there's a midge there. Sure. Because um, they are visual, I mean, they're visual predators. Mm -hmm. they, most of what they're eating, it's based on what they see. Um, but they're just super abundant. And one other element of midges that makes them, I think, a, a valuable prey item for the trout and, and one that they they really take advantage of, whether they want to or not, is that they're a, they're pretty abundant all year round. Mm -hmm. And so in the winter time here in our streams, that's a time when a lot of aquatic invertebrates will go into like a diapause, which is almost like a resting state where they're not growing, they're not reproducing. So naturally their populations will just start to sort of dwindle. So they're not as available. But in our area, we've got these, what they call ultra cold stenothermic midges or, or chironomids. <laughs> the family name is chironomids. And they call them ultra cold stenotherms, which basically means that they are adapted to, to reproducing and thriving in really cold temperatures. Um, and this actually relates more to the air temperature um, than even the water temperature. But they like to hang out around the springs that are coming in the stream. And um, so at a time when a lot of the other insects, you know, I think you think of things like mayflies, for example, and like um, um, caddisflies, they'll kind of start to, their numbers will start to wane. But all of a sudden, like these midges are still really abundant. And there are these ultra cold stenotherms during the winter time that are specially adapted to grow and emerge during the winter. Um, they grow and reproduce. They'll actually have, they think maybe three to four generations of them will grow and emerge during the winter time. Wow. And so like if you're walking along a stream in February and you see something that, and it, uh, like a, something that looks like a mosquito. Yeah, and you say, oh my God, it, there's still snow on the ground. There's mosquitoes out. Well, there is not a mosquito. It's, it's the <laughs> adult form of, of the midge. So they, they emerge from the stream and then they reproduce and essentially die. <clears throat> But they, um, what triggers that is, is the air temperature that um, kind of triggers that spawning to happen among these midges. And um, so anyways, that's a really unique thing that our cold water streams have. And so what we found is that 
they're probably contri- they're they're contributing a lot to their diet during the winter time. Other types of midges in the stream are contributing to their diet during the summertime. So there's so this is where it gets a little bit um I don't know if fuzzy is the right word, but there's a lot of different species of midges and they're still trying to figure out like they're still defining or describing the different midges. So these ultra cold stenotherms are still being described and, and they're still trying to understand them. And it's it's sad because one of the um, researchers that did a lot of work with these ultra cold stenotherms in southeastern Minnesota was a man named um, Dr. Len Farrington from the University of Minnesota. And he was he's he was doing a project, um, a citizen science project where he was which some of your listeners might be interested in if they're anglers and they mm-hmm. like to go out in the winter, is collecting, you know, if you see these midges, the adult midges along the streams, you can collect them and put them in a little vial, and then you can send them to the University of Minnesota um, for this project, which is called, um, oh gosh, I have to remember what the name of the, the project. Um, I'll remember it in a second, <laughs> so I can, so you can all like go and Google it. Mm-hmm. Oh, Bugs Below Zero. So it's called Bugs Below Zero. And you bugs can, Below Zero. And so you can mail them the vial of this midge, and then they'll, they'll do some taxonomy on it. They'll probably, you know, they'll try, they'll add it to their database of like, so things they're interested in are, when are these cold, these winter, we call them winter emerging midges is sort of the colloquial term for the ultra cold stenotherms. So when are these winter emerging midges emerging? Like, so they want to find more patterns. Like what are the species? Like, are they different species? Where, like, where are their ranges? And so they're really leaning into scientists or anglers and people who like to hike along streams and spend time along streams to kind of help contribute to the study. Mm-hmm. But the one who came up, the man who kind of spearheaded this, Dr. Len Farrington, he just passed away unexpectedly about, oh gosh, a month and a half ago oh, or shoot. so. Yeah, which is really sexy. It is. He was, we were actually planning to do some work with my students on the streams where they were going to go out and collect midges and then we were going to run we were going to actually do some dna work in the lab to help them kind of figure out what species are here but um but it's a cool project if any of your listeners are interested in that they should because it's still going even in the absence of land they're they're going to continue it on that's good yeah i know i mean walking out it's kind kind of contrary but in the in the winter is one of my favorite times to fly fish (laughs) you know the streams around here they stay open they're and a lot of, not a lot of people think that they would. Um, mm-hmm. And if you don't get a very hard winter, the streams stay open. You know, most of them do, because mm-hmm. most of them come out of the ground. You know, they're groundwater uh, spring fed, spring fed streams, the so they're not uh, cold summer, warm winter. Stream. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, that's a great... So um, yeah, streams are open and uh, <clears throat> you can fish them. Um, yeah, and it, it it's kind of a time of year where you're. You're antsy. You're chomping at the bit to do something. You know, hunting season just got over, and you're like, "Oh gosh, I, I got to get out of the house." So it's a good mm-hmm. thing to do. And I've seen tons of midges. I mean, on the snow, I've been. I mean, some of the mid hatches are hatches are pretty crazy around mm-hmm. here. So, yeah. um, so going from winter, you know, midges. Mm-hmm. I, you know, we, uh, Trevor and I, I'm sure, have seen tons of midge hatches, and you, you know, been part mm-hmm. of many midge hatches too. Mm-hmm. Going from the winter to the spring that transitional phase i think you know is, is another one of my favorite times to fish for trout mm-hmm. i feel like that water starts to warm up a little bit and they're getting a little more uh active and you know kind of starting to sp- spread their fins a little bit mm-hmm. what are they eating that time of year well so they're still eating a lot of midges but they're also starting to feed a little bit more off of drifting invertebrates so in the spring and this could be an artifact of the fact that like 
wa- uh, water levels are higher, like flows are higher because of melt off and spring rain. But that's a time when there's quite a bit of drift. And so they'll start to turn more to like drifting invertebrates. However, I will say for the most part, the brown trout in our streams are really, they're, they're what we call epibenthic feeders. So they're feeding off of the surface of the substrate, mostly. Now that's in contrast with some, like if out west, for example, where like trout rely a lot more on drift that's, that's falling into the stream, like those terrestrial invertebrates. Sure. And the reason for that is that our streams are very productive. So our water is like very fertile. There's a lot of like dissolved nutrients in our water. And so that supports really healthy popula- populations of um, invertebra- aquatic invertebrates. That's in contrast to like streams out west, which are not so fertile. So they don't have that abundance of aquatic invertebrates available. So the trout have to rely on those um, terrestrial inputs, we would call it, or terrestrial um, invertebrates that are falling into the stream. So I will say that here, our trout are mostly feeding epibenthically, but they also will start to take advantage of, of the drift of the invertebrates that are known to drift a little bit more. Okay. Um, scuds are one thing. So they really favor scuds. So when we, when and we what did, is, I'm sorry to interrupt you. What oh, is a scud? So a scud is a freshwater shrimp okay. or an amphipod. And so they are like, they're usually like yellowish, like a big one might be the size of like my thumbnail. Yep. But so to a scud, uh, it would be like a size of what? 14, 16? Yeah, usually that, yeah. Yeah, right around there. 14 or 16 <coughs> hook size, I guess, is what you can curved, buy a scud yeah, for. curved. Yeah, kind of a little curved. Yep. But go ahead, Jen. Do you have flies for a scud that mimic mm-hmm. scuds? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, because yeah, they like love orange scuds. and then olive Some colors. pink ones, too. Pink. Yep. Yeah, so they, and they really like, and scuds tend to drift, like to disperse, they'll drift. Um, and they're also ones that are available year-round. Like, they tend to be highly abundant also in the winter. Um, and one thing that's interesting about the scuds is that there's, if, again, if you look at the calories, they're like, it's like feeding a trout pecan pie, like they're packed with nutrients. <laughs> Another thing they tend to favor, like in the spring also, actually all year round. So when we did that, the study, when we kind of analyzed the data to see like what trout were selecting for, or essentially like, what are they being picky for? So like, if I'm like looking in my fridge and I'm being picky, I will like go after like, I'll go after the cherry pie in my fridge, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so what they're going to go after are the scuds. Have cherry pie? <laughs> well, not right Sorry. now, but that's if that's what I'm imagining my fridge. If it was in there, I would go. I'm, I have cherry pie on the brain right now. Um, snails. Oh. So there's a snail around here called Ficella is the genus that it's in, but it's a Ficella snail. And that's another organism that is very calorically valuable and so it's got a lot of it packs a lot of punch um so the trout eats it it gets a lot of bang for its buck essentially so you're talking about calories that a trout needs Mm -hmm. what is it what does a trout need a day for calories oh that's a good question so it depends i don't know of the caloric amount but it depends on water temperature a lot of it depends on water temperature since they're cold-blooded so different times of year they need to have different amounts of food in order to sustain growth um, and so one thing that's interesting about our streams in southeastern Minnesota and, and I think across the Driftless area that makes us different from maybe cold water streams at other latitudes is that our trout, because of the temperatures of our streams, our trout are metabolically like active and feeding all year long. Mm-hmm. So because our trout streams are fed by um, groundwater springs, 
they're what we call like winter warm. So they stay free of ice during the winter flowing, unlike, you know, like the Mississippi or Lake Winona that freezes over because it doesn't have that groundwater input. They stay free of ice, free flowing, so they're winter warm, but they're also summer cold. So they stay cold in the summer. Now, trout have like a window of temperatures that's like ideal for them to grow. And so when we've done work looking at the temperatures of our streams and then looking at how trout are growing in those various streams, we're finding that the ones that have high levels of groundwater input are where trout grow really well. And they grow really well all year round, which is kind of unusual. So you think yeah. of trout, or you think of fish in most systems, and you think like, oh, they're growing during the summer probably, yep. maybe during the spring and fall. But during winter time when conditions are harsh, they're metabolically, they kind of shut down. Mm-hmm. Our trout don't. They grow, we, we found that they grow pretty much all year round. And some of their fastest growth is in like the early spring. And that's because those water temperatures are like right in optimal. that I- optimal window of growth. And they also have a, tons of food presence. So like when there are tons of food available. So they're not food limited. Mm-hmm. Whereas in other systems, they might have optimal temperatures, but they don't have enough food. And so they, they're not going to grow at those optimal ranges. So our trout grow pretty fast and we have very productive streams sure kind of the perfect storm for trout bulking yes is that springtime year totally yeah absolutely yeah so those temperatures are great mm-hmm. one thing that i that i like to think about you know i as a as a fly fisherman myself i throw a lot of streamers um i i kind of like to think of that trout you know if i if i were a trout you know i'd see like a you know a midge would be like a little French fry going by me. Mm-hmm. Another midge would it's be a, a great little way to French put it. fry. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great. But way if to put I it. see you know a big grasshopper or something, that's like a big cheeseburger. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm getting a lot of calories. I don't have to go out of my way too much. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I, I would, you know, grasshoppers don't hatch too much in that springtime. But you know, I, I know a lot of caddis do too um, in that early spring. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's actually another. So that's a time. At least we found that um, Brachiocentris, which are sometimes I'm not great at like the it sounds like a dinosaur. <laughs> so Brachiocentris is um, the American Gramen, Granin. Okay. So I think are you familiar with that? So you pull them out of their case and they're like bright green. They're like all over here. Do you know the common name for yeah, them? Yeah, this is a caddis. I think a caddis, yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. They, so, they spin what? like a little uh, little hard shell that's kind of cylindrical. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so they, I think what we found in our studies where we were looking at like the prey availability, their numbers, or they had the highest densities in the stream where they were most abundant in the spring. Mm-hmm. And this was especially in Garvin Brook, which is you know right behind the house here. Like they're super abundant in the spring. So the trout seemed... Like in our studies, we were trying to figure out like what are they going after? Like what do they prefer? They seem to go after large-bodied caddisflies. There's another one called Limnophilidae, which is known as the northern caddisfly, which kind of looks like a Brachiocentris or the American Grenin, but it makes a much bigger case. So they tend to go after those. I don't know. Do tie flies that mimic cases? I sometimes do. Do you? Yeah, heavy. You know, they're sitting at the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. So the one, the limnophilids, the northern caddisfly. I think that's the name that's used around here. It's like kind of a curved case, and they they can get really, really big. I think they use like little pebble, like sand pebbles. Yeah, they'll use like larger pebble. grains of sand yeah. to make them. So the way I've tied that fly is, um, you take, you know, you obviously your hook, and you wrap um, a cactus chenille, a very uh, small cactus chenille, in brown, and then you take a lighter and burn the, oh, the yeah, cactus chenille. So it kind of looks like little 
pebbles. And you can kind of, you know, you yeah. can kind of use your fingers, not when it's so hot, but you can kind of use your fingers and, you know, tamp it down a little bit so it looks more like a casing. Yeah. And then, you know, more towards the eye of the hook, you, you use a little bit of dubbing, like green dubbing mm-hmm. and some black dubbing to make it look like that caddis is coming it's out. emerging. All exactly. That's... So then yeah. do you, how do you present it? Uh, usually you just like a nymphing, okay. nymphing, so you throw it up and you, a lot of people use indicators. I don't use indicators cause I think they're dumb. <laughs> just kind of like yeah, bobber fishing. It's a bobber. But, yeah. It's a bobber. Don't call it an indicator. It's a bobber. <laughs> um, but a lot of people use indicators. I just kind of tight line it and, you know, bounce it along the bottom or, or whatever, but. Um, yeah, but th- that's a good, uh, yeah. Good yeah. Yeah. So they, that. that was something that, so I would say like the most preference, or the, they showed preference for like snails, scuds, and then large bodied caddisflies. Okay. For sure. Now going into summer, mm-hmm. what, what did trout like to eat in the summer? Oh, still a lot of midges. More midges. <laughs> <laughs> still yeah. always. I mean, like across the 12 streams we looked at, like I think midges were usually at least half of their stomach contents was made up of midges. So they, but, th- but again, but if you present them with a mid, I mean, you have success with midge flies, don't you? Mm-hmm. you t- like, so I think you can have good success with them, but you can also have fun playing around with other types of prey. So mm-hmm. in the summer, I mean, they'll, like, they'll start going after invertebrate or um, um, terrestrial invertebrates that fall into the stream. Um, they did show selectivity towards like uh, drifting prey, like, they would kind of maybe ignore the stuff in the benthos and kind of go after what was in the in the drift. I mean, especially if there's things like, you know, grasshoppers floating around. The problem is, is it's not super abundant. Like, just if you look at the biomass of what's available in the aquatic invertebrates in the benthos, and then those aquatic inver- invertebrates that are drifting, it's just so much more than what's falling into the stream. Every once in a while, like after a rainfall event or something, we'd have like stomachs that were packed with like aphids and and um ants and things like that um but yeah it's just it's mostly aquatic invertebrates around here kind of kind of matching the hatch too yeah i'm sure trevor's been you know a part of many trico hatches too and that's kind of in that later summertime Mm -hmm. um but now going into fall if i was a trout you know i'd be like oh gosh it's starting to get a little cold again the days are getting shorter gotta eat (laughs) start putting the feed bag on yeah totally and they're going into spawning season so it's a time when they really have to be like energetically speaking they need to eat a lot in order to like grow and be able to produce gametes uh, they're the eggs and sperm in order Mm -hmm. to undergo spawning um in the late fall and so gosh in the fall again i mean not to like beat a dead horse but lots of midges (laughs) (laughs) a lot of midges um, and then again, too, we haven't really talked much about mayflies. They So mayflies are a common food source, and they're pretty abundant around here. The one thing that's interesting about, we found a lot of um, mayflies in their stomachs, but in terms of like their presence in their stomachs relative to their availability in the environment, they didn't seem to go after them or prefer them or elect them um, as much as other, other types of species. And we think part of that is because mayflies actually have the ability to kind of evade predation. And so the trout tend to be really um, active, at least around here, they tend to be the most active in feeding, like in a crepuscular um, pattern, which means like at dusk and dawn. And at those times, there's been studies that show that like mayflies actually will kind of retreat and kind of like 
hide a little bit more under like rocks and crevices and things in order to and they think it's directly to avoid predation by trout um, but they're still eating them mm-hmm. when they find them um, stoneflies that will find stoneflies not as many as I'd like to find but part of that is that stoneflies just naturally to some extent they just naturally occur in lower their populations are just naturally smaller than mm-hmm. those of other invertebrates um, but yeah, going into fall, I mean, they tend to be pretty hungry and they eat a lot going into fall. But again, it's a lot of kind of the same old stuff like scuds, um, midges, snails when they can get them. Um, we haven't really talked about like piscivory at all, but we also see like with among the larger fish, we see quite a bit of piscivory. In fact, in Gilmore Creek, we've seen a lot of piscivory, especially with those fish that we were talking about before we started the recording behind shop behind the former shop go there there were tons of really large brown trout and we found they were packed full of these fish called stickleback these like kind of tiny smaller fish and is that what piscivory means is it like a bait fish or oh yeah so piscivory is just like when fish eat other fish okay yeah and so like that tends to be restricted to larger brown trout like so when they get to be probably like three years old or so which would be Oh gosh, an inch. I always think in millimeters. That'd be like 300 millimeters or so. What, what is that in inches? Like 18? 16, 16 18. inches. Yeah. By about that time, I think opportunistically they'll start to eat other fish. Sometimes you'll find they're even, um, they'll even eat other, like they'll eat um, brown trout. Like brown mm-hmm. trout will eat their mm-hmm. own yep. if, if they're available in there. So around that upper teens mark is kind of when they start eating other fish mm-hmm. and frogs we, and, oh yeah, yeah we, we find frogs we'll find i think the most frequent like non-invertebrate things that we'll find are like sticklebacks like small brown trout do you uh, actually one time i not sculpted i was just gonna say sculpted. not too far long after they did the uh, the renovations here in garvin i was out fishing and I looked down and I saw this little thing, you know, below my feet kind of dart. It wasn't very long. It was maybe, I don't know, two and a half inches long. And I had a GoPro with me at the time. Oh, yeah. So I dipped it down under the water and sure enough, there was a little sculpin. Oh, they're adorable. They are. Yeah. <laughs> they're such a cool fish. Yeah. And for me, you know, if I was a trout, you know, a big trout, I'd be like, boy, that, yeah. that sucker's going <laughs> to you know, get it, me through the night. <laughs> it's funny. You know, they don't eat as many sculpin as you would imagine they would because so at least in our streams like the two most dominant fish well the most dominant fish of course is the brown trout and then second to that would be in most of the cold water reaches that are designated trout stream would be sculpin and they don't eat a ton of sculpin i mean once in a while you'll find one but it's more common i think if like stickleback are available they'll be eating the stickleback Okay. At least is what I found in, in stomachs. And then, you know, and then we'll find, it's really fun when we find like a leopard frog or um, oh, what, once in a while, like a shrew or a mouse. Sure. Yeah. So that was one, one uh, technique we were talking about before we hopped on the podcast here was, was mousing. And that's uh, like a surface fly that you, you know, mm-hmm. throw the opposite bank and skirt across real quick. So you have found mouse in Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, not super frequently. And and one thing is that when we're backpack electrofishing, we, I mean, we do a decent job catching, I would say, a good number of the fish that are in the reach that we're sampling. But, you know, some of those bigger fish, like if there's a deep pool there, like with a backpack electrofisher, we're kind of limited to going to a depth that's like, oh, gosh, I'm like five, six 
six, five, seven. So I can only go like maybe as deep as like my belly button before I'm starting to like submerge the battery. And like, so <laughs> there's only so deep we can go. So sometimes we miss out on like those bigger fish that would be doing, you know, that would be eating other fish or eating, you know, little mammals and stuff. And so it's probably more common than we know simply because we're, I think our sampling methods favor the smaller fish. Okay. One thing, you know, as, as I, you know, I fly fish, so I don't use live bait, but mm -hmm. I know a lot of people around here use live bait and night crawlers. What's the deal with the night crawlers? Why do they like night crawlers so much? They're wriggly. I think they just catch <laughs> their attention. You know, they're just, so even we'll find um, in stomachs, we'll find, again, this is like common, like after a rainfall event where, you know, like stuff is just running off into the stream. We'll find a lot of worms and centipedes. Oh gosh, what else will we find? Um, like, yeah, like a lot of worms and centipedes after that. I and mean, I think it, it's a really, so trout are opportunistic generalist feeders is what we call them. So they will just, if, and I even say this like when people are asking like, what should I throw out a fish? Something shiny and wriggly, <laughs> something that catches their eye, they're probably gonna go after it. Sure. So like that's how it is I think with night crawlers is they're just moving in the water and. We're look, fly fishermen, so. We don't do shiny and oh, wriggly. Whoa. Come on. No. <laughs> Everything's gray and olive. Yeah. Yeah. That can be fun, too. Yeah. I do tie, tie quite a bit of polar flash in some oh, of my yeah. streamers. Oh, yeah. So it is, you know, that is flashy and will get the, will catch their attention. Mm -hmm. But yeah. What about you and your Panther Martins? Panther Martins are great. Yeah, for the girls when we go out there. <laughs> There's nothing that can be a Panther Martin. I'll yeah. tell you that right now. I mean, What did your dad used to say? Two, uh, four, six, eight. No. Four six eight ten Panther Martin strikes again. <laughs> he was that was his favorite line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, they're they're pretty deadly. If you yeah. want to catch a, a trout, that's the old standard black mm -hmm. with yellow polka dots and yeah. a little mm -hmm. blade in the front. That'll do it. Yeah. Uh, earlier, um, you were talking about behind your house on Garvin here. You set up a trail camera, mm -hmm. and what was the purpose of that? Oh, cool. So we have a study going on, um, and part of this was with. Um, Doug Dieterman with the DNR. So he's a, oh, I forget what his title is, but he works a lot on the cold water streams and cold water fisheries in southeastern Minnesota. And so he kind of put this idea into my head of one thing they've noticed. So they do regular um, trout monitoring every year. So where they, oh, there's something going on. Um, so where they, they, um, they have a, a series of streams in southeastern Minnesota, where they go every year, a couple times a year, and they monitor trout populations. And part of what they're doing is they try to estimate mortality and um, over time. And what they found is the season with the highest mortality or death rate of trout in our streams is in the fall. So that's when trout seem to have the lowest ability to survive. And the theory behind that is like, well, they're spawning, mm -hmm. right? So they're spawning at that time, which... So leading into fall, they're eating a lot, they're really strong, and usually their condition is really good going into spawning, but then after spawning, it's like, man, they're spent, especially mm -hmm. like the females. And so they think maybe they're more vulnerable to like predation in the late fall after spawning, and so maybe they're in these like shallow riffles. There's some degree of mortality that probably happens to females after like post-spawn. And so we're wondering if maybe there's some, like maybe if we're looking at terrestrial predation, is that a time maybe when terrestrial predators can take advantage of post-spawn females? 
And so what we're doing is to kind of just, even just to get an idea of what are the terrestrial predators of trout. Like we have an idea, like if you ask most anglers, like what they think are terrestrial predators that are preying on trout, like what would you guess? An otter. I mean, I've otter, seen two yeah. otters uh, fly fishing before on streams. I've oh, seen. which streams? Like I'll have bigger. to tell you later. Okay. <laughs> herons. Um, herons, yep, is another one. Yep. Murders. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The shy poke. Other than that, I guess I have no idea. Herons, the raccoons. Other trout. Other trout, yep. yep, other trout. So what we found so far, so we've done like three trials of, um, so what we do is we catch trout electrofishing, um, and then we keep them alive. And this is this sounds so bad when I say it out loud. <laughs> but we keep them alive and then we tether them with some mon- monofilament to a weight in the stream that's only about 30 centimeters long. So they have a very short tether. But that allows them to swim a little bit and you know move water over their gills. And they're, they can survive pretty long tethered like that. But we put them in shallow parts of the stream. And then we set up trail cameras to see what's going to go after them when they can't get away. The sacrificial <laughs> lamb. Yep. <laughs> and so we could, so there's two ways to do this. We could have sacrificed the fish and then just sort of laid them out dead, which is maybe how they are post-spawn. Like they might be briefly in the stream like dead and then, but we decided to try it first with live fish um, in shallow parts of the stream. And so far we've gotten interesting results. So our first trial was all herons. Okay. Like, yeah, I think it was all mm-hmm. herons. Um, on the trail cams and so they're voracious in fact i've been sampling on streams where fishermen or anglers have come up to me and been like they thought i was with the dnr and they're like you need to do something about these herons like get rid of them they're eating all of our fish and i just feel like well you know i just like sampled 250 fish in about 100 meters so like the fish are there they're, they're right. doing okay yep. but i understand the sentiment like i know sometimes trevor behind the house will he'll see herons kind of swooping down and he'll just be like oh they're eating our fish <laughs> Like there's plenty. So we've seen, so that first trial, we saw lots of herons. Our second trial, we were, um, we set the fish out in a way where some of the fish had access to cover. So like, um, like rocks or boulders or like overhanging vegetation where they could kind of hide. And then others didn't, we just kind of exposed them. And that trial we saw, we had some raccoons, we had mink preying on the fish. Then we also had one interesting scenario where we have pictures of a coyote, a couple of pictures of a coyote, like kind of hanging out over the fish, like looking at it, like, you know, tethered in the stream. The fish was gone shortly after, I mean, that was our last, our, our last uh, trail cam picture the evidence of the but, fish but we don't have there. the fish yeah. like in the coyote's mouth so we can't <laughs> conclusively say that the coyote took the took the trout but mm-hmm. it'd be very interesting if it did because i just I, I just briefly kind of poked around the literature and i couldn't find any any literature documentation of coyotes eating trout so that's kind of cool but yeah i would imagine he took it i mean yeah. coyotes are opportunistic Absolutely. feeders too yeah yeah huh and wow trout tastes good they do. <laughs> <laughs> they are delicious. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. So we're yeah we're we're running. Actually, I have a student who's out who was supposed to be out this afternoon collecting her trail cam video. So we'll see what she has. But that's cool. Yeah. I guess that was another one of my questions. Is you know how do trout avoid getting eaten? Mm-hmm. That's you, a really You good mentioned question. some overhanging, you know, brush or grass. I mean. Yeah. So one one part of this. But, or one takeaway from this predation study that we're hoping to kind of get a sense for is like how important is cover for fish? I mean, we know that it's important. So by cover, I mean like in-stream habitat that fish can 
used to hide from predators. And oftentimes in a stream, it's maybe juvenile trout, like hiding from larger adult trout that might want to be um, cannibalistic and eat their own, which happens. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, but uh, so especially for like avian predators, I mean, really having cover is really important, and that's that's like deep pools. So mm-hmm. oftentimes, trout will hang out in, in deeper pools to avoid predation. Um, having like woody snags or woody debris in the streams, so like when you see like trees that have fallen in the stream, oftentimes when we're out sampling or electrofishing, and we come across like a pool with like a with a nice tree that's fallen over in it, that's like where we know we're going to catch yep. a lot of fish. For somewhere to for them to sneak off, and <clears throat> mm-hmm. find a nice, yeah, hideaway place yeah. for them to hide. And yeah. also, I think like metabolically, like this, the current is slower, so they don't have to work really hard. They can just kind of chill out there, and you know, they're they're not usually actively feeding a ton when they're in those deep pools, but they can just kind of chill out and and be uh, a little bit um, hidden from mm-hmm. potential predators. Sure. One time, uh, one of my crazy stories from uh, the trout stream, and every 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 trout fisherman's got one. But we were uh, we were fishing. It was opener day, and uh, I think this was 2019. Yeah, 2019. And we came up around this bend, and we looked off to the side, and there was a red-tailed hawk, but he was all wet. And so I don't know if he was going after a fish or what the heck he was doing, but he was soaked, and. He wasn't good. I mean, it was opener day, so it was January 1st. And, you know, he he couldn't fly away because, you know, he got wet and then his feathers started mm-hmm. to freeze a little bit. So I called the raptor center and said, hey, you know, I got this red-tailed hawk. Can you come get it? Dropped him a pin and, well, we went off. Um, three days later, I took one of my buddies back to the stream and there was the poor thing dead. Oh. Yeah, I, I don't they wanted me to, it was it was a it was a weird scenario they they wanted me to wait there they were coming down from the cities and i'm like well, i'm gonna be sitting here in the freezing cold myself <laughs> too i gotta keep moving and you know i said you know this is where the thing is you can follow our tracks and you know but anyway the poor thing died and you know but i, I would imagine it was you know trying to eat trout yeah or maybe it would you know well it was when we were wondering if we might see some hawks and hopefully we probably i hope we do like or even like a bald eagle because mm-hmm. there's some you know, there's uh, we're so we're running osprey, yeah. We so. had one back, uh, bald eagle osprey, osprey back here, yeah. Like collision where the, the bald eagle took it from from a uh, trout from the osprey. Wow, I witnessed. Yeah, it was pretty neat. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we're hoping we can document some of that. So the other thing I kind of wanted to talk to you about, and you and you wanted to talk to me about as well, is water quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of you know uh, how how might the the trout's diet change over the years, um, you know through the so, seasons and through the years, how how does that? So one thing. So when we talk about water quality, there's a couple of different angles we can look at. So I think so one thing we don't often think about when we think about water quality is temperature, but there's something that's called like thermal pollution, and in a cold water stream, anytime that you have like an unnatural warming event in the stream that that is considered what we would call like thermal pollution and so like in an urban setting that might be runoff from you know like impervious surfaces like parking, parking. lots and like 
lawns, you know, just anything where the water is going to run off, like especially like concrete and roads and, and all of that. So when that runs off into the water, it, it elevates the water temperature. And so that can create scenarios where you're like brief periods of time where like trout can be stressed out or other fish even can be stressed out depending on what their ideal range of temperatures are. And so at least in the driftless area, I think when we talk about water quality, one thing we think a lot about is climate change and what's going to happen with rising water temperatures. Now, I think there's not there's not a 100% consensus on what's going to happen to our cold water streams in our area with climate change. I think the evidence in the literature that I've seen and that I've even been a part of some of the work that's been done looking at the relationship between stream water temperatures and air temperatures. And when we look at the relationship, like we'll set out temperature loggers in the streams that will log water temperatures constantly. And then we'll look at the relationship between those temperatures that are being logged in the stream with the air temperatures right outside the stream. And we find that the streams that are more buffered by the springs are um, less responsive to changes in air temperature. In areas where there's fewer springs feeding into the stream, so like you can think of even like the like the Mississippi River, for example, there's not a lot of spring influence in the Mississippi River. So they're going to um, respond more quickly to increases in air temperature. Or like if there's melts or runoff, they're going to just, their temperatures are going to fluctuate a lot more on an annual basis than like our cold water streams. And our cold water streams that are heavily spring fed, you know, the temperatures are pretty constant year round. And so when we look at climate change, we're wondering how. You know, what is that relationship between air temperature and water temperature? And we think that it's going to be more buffered in our cold water streams, meaning that as air temperatures rise with climate change, that areas that are, or, or reaches that are more spring fed, they're going to raise, they're going to rise in water temperature, but more slowly, which is good. That is good. Good news for the trout. It yeah. is good. And, and, but there's some, there's, I've talked to a couple people, and again, this isn't in the literature, but I've talked to a couple people that think, and I'm not like, and this is like a Dylan question, but, <laughs> and actually I texted Dylan about it saying like, what do you, what do you think about this? And we didn't quite get to hash it out, but there, I, there was one geologist who said that he thinks that stream temperatures are actually going to decrease and go down. Really? Be, and partially, I think his line of thought was because of the residence time. So like our groundwater spends a lot of time in the groundwater before it emerges in the trout stream. And so it can down there and, and stay pretty cold so I, I think there is like I said there's a lack of resolution about what's going to happen with stream temperatures with climate change but I think the majority of, of um, scientists predict that they're going to go up in fact there was a paper which you might be interested in there was a, a few papers that came out of the state of Wisconsin with the DNR that modeled climate change and its impact on stream temperatures on, they looked at all of the fish in, in Wisconsin, and specifically with brown trout and brook trout, they modeled that their temp that their habitats are gonna like, oh gosh, like be drastically reduced with climate change within twenty years. Within it? twenty years, like maybe eighty eight percent loss wow. of habitat. Again, it's it's one of those things where we kind of have to, we, we're relying on modeling, which is imperfect. It's only as good as the data we have to put in. Mm -hmm. um, but I think. Even when we've, like I said, when we've done studies looking at the correlation between air temperature and stream temperature, it's, there's a pretty tight correlation, so we're pretty sure it's going to go up. And for brown trout, 
in our area, like we're kind of at what we would call like the thermal margin for them. So like our stream temperatures can't get a whole lot warmer for them to be able to thrive here. Mm -hmm. And so in particular, like those summer temperatures um, are what we're most concerned about. Like so in, in streams that maybe don't have a lot of springs feeding into them and buffering those temperatures. So like if you have reaches that don't have a lot of springs in them, but maybe are just barely cool enough for trout in the summer, what we're going to see are those temperatures are going to go up and trout can, they can, they can do okay at a temperature that's too warm for a short amount of time, but it's when they, when those periods of warm water temperatures last too long that they'll, that that's when they can get really stressed out and die. So they can tolerate like little peaks of, of warm water temperatures, but they can't sustain, um, or they can't, um, thrive when, when those high temperatures are sustained. So that's kind of what we're looking for. And we think that okay. the summertime is going to be when they're vulnerable. Gotcha. And brook trout even more so. So brook trout, which I don't, we haven't really talked a lot about, but they're, you know, they're our native salmonid down here and um, they don't get enough attention, I don't think, but, <laughs> um, but they're even more um, sensitive to temperature. So we're likely to see even further reductions in brook trout habitat before we see the reductions, <clears throat> excuse me, in brown trout habitat. Okay. Well, let's, uh, we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> And yeah. hope that the research that one that one fellow you mentioned or it's uh is more accurate i guess yeah we'll, yeah. Uh, yeah but i mean like with other elements of water quality so temperature is one thing but we also live in a pretty agricultural area yeah. and for the most part like i think we've got a lot of good agriculture happening here like small scale but there's also some practices that maybe are showing themselves to be a little problematic um so one study I was a part of, and Dylan was a part of this study, where we looked at water quality in the Whitewater River. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a fish kill in the Whitewater River a few years back. And so one problem when this big, massive fish kill happened is that by the time people got there to test for the water, or to test the water quality, all of the water had diluted and run downstream. And so when they tested the water, it was fine. It was already too late. It was too exactly. It was too late. And so this project was, was trying to figure out better ways to kind of respond to fish kills. And like part of that is like educating citizens who maybe be, maybe anglers and homeowners and like giving them little cards that have like, you know, the phone numbers to call if you see a fish kill to like reduce those response times. But I, I believe the official consensus of that fish kill in the Whitewater River was that it was that they they couldn't pinpoint a cause, but they're pretty certain there were some pretty heavy applications of fungicides in the Whitewater um, or in you know in that river valley right ahead of that fish kill, and that that probably had something to do with it. And so we did some study with these some some monitoring with these like water quality samplers that were in the stream which after a heavy rainfall event it would trigger these water quality samplers to like collect water samples and then it would do some of the measurements like in the like in the device itself but some of them we had to go and collect the water samples and then bring them to the University of Minnesota in particular to test for things like fungicides like were they detecting fungicides and there were a couple of samples that where there were really high levels of fungicides in those water samples and these fungicides are super toxic mm -hmm. like really toxic so I think that's something that we have to kind of pay attention mm -hmm. and most of the times I mean when they're applying these fungicides like you know they're looking at things like 
you know, they're looking at the weather. Like they're not supposed to apply them if there's, you know, rain in the forecast. Yep. And yep. so they're strategic about that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, every once in a while there could be a fluke where, um, you know, you could end up having a lot of these chemicals in the stream and it could cause like a fish kill. Yep. Good thing is I've, I've gone back <laughs> and fished that stream and it's it's fishing pretty well now. You know, so they've bounced back. You know, that's the remarkable thing about our streams, and partly because they're so productive. So, like, yeah, these fish kills that happen. Like, there was one in Garvin Brook two years ago now, um, just, like, kind of near the headwaters. And um, Neil Mundahl at Winona State, he's done some follow-up um, monitoring of the population, and it's bouncing back pretty good, which that's is good. awesome. That's good. So, in response to the fish kill, so that's you want to call the state duty officer? Mm-hmm. And the number is one eight hundred four two two zero seven nine eight, and then they'll then you can, it's a it's called the Minnesota duty officer, and that's how you how you report a fish kill, and as soon as you see it, call. It's a, it's the most important way to you know figure out why, yep, and prevent it for the, the future. Yeah, that's yeah, good so, to know. Yep, good to know. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> One of uh, one of my my friends and another listener to the podcast had a question for you. So this is a listener question, mm-hmm. and if you uh, if you have if any listeners out here, uh, I've got an Instagram page you can follow along at CMD CMD podcast Catch My Drift podcast. Um, and he wanted to know: Do trout, as they grow bigger, become nocturnal? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think there's evidence of of salmonids which salmonids are the family that trout are in is what includes like other types of trout so there's evidence that they do become more nocturnal as they get older um and i'm not sure they're totally clear on the reason why for that um but they tend to be i mean they tend to be visual feeders and so if they're awake at night in theory, if it's like a nice clear night with like a full moon, they could be feeding, and that might be a time to like throw a mouse pattern at mm-hmm. them. In my experience, and again, most of my work is done with like juvenile and maybe like young adult trout. They tend to be the most active at dusk and dawn. Okay. And I don't know what they're doing at night exactly, but there might be a considerable amount of movement that's happening. Um, it'd be really interesting actually to tag. Some of our, and in fact, maybe this is something I'll do with some students is like tag some fish with like, you know, like with radio telemetry tags and like follow them and see what they're doing at night. Um, but there is thought that they are more nocturnal mm-hmm. as they get older. Mm-hmm. And I, I think part of it might have to do with predation. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, coyotes are very active at night, but <laughs> herons are roosting. Yeah. Um, you know, other birds of prey, I, I, you know, they're they're not out and about during the night, too. So that might have something to oh, do with es- it, too. Especially, cause especially for, like, larger trout in our systems, like adult trout, like, really, they're most vulnerable to avian predators mm-hmm. and to terrestrial predators, which at night, they're going to be more protected. Mm-hmm. Under so, the covered darkness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And then if that's a time that they want to go feed in shallower waters, that's a safer time to go feed in, you know, shallower waters yeah. where there's more benthic prey available. Definitely. Um, so what? another off-topic off question is, I know you guys have three girls. Um, I just, my wife and I just had a daughter ourselves. What are some tips uh, that you that you guys can think of for, for, for raising um, outdoor-minded girls? Hmm. 
just get them outside just do it yeah. i mean if it if it seems like it's a lot of work just remember that it's for them and not you i mean that's when i when when i take them fishing <laughs> i don't take my own pole so we've got some really nice trout back here with the snoopy you know the snoopy pole <laughs> and the panther martin and yeah. it's you know get them to learn how to cast and and just show the excitement let them touch them you know touch the fish they always want to touch their eyes for <laughs> some reason oh yeah <laughs> i don't know why <laughs> one thing that's too and this could even i mean if you have listeners that maybe aren't into angling and they want to get into angling i know with the minnesota dnr they're doing a lot of programming to try to recruit mm-hmm. people like underrepresented groups especially into hunting and fishing and so they call it their R3 effort. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with it. I've heard of yeah. it, yeah, but explain it. So the R3 effort, it's um, recruitment of new hunters and anglers, um, retention, so trying to keep people involved in it, and then also um, reactivation. So like if there's folks that maybe, like Trevor, like my husband, like he was a big hunter when he was young, kind of fell out of it in his late adolescence, like early 20s when he got into skiing and other kind of stuff but now he's back into it so he he was kind of reactivated um and so this effort is so they're doing a lot of programming along with this um like mentoring and um for for example right now i just had an email that there's a a call for grant proposals um to uh it's called no child left indoors okay and so it's a (laughs) dnr program some of your listeners may i mean like anyone who's works with kids or youth is eligible to like apply for these grants especially if you're affiliated with like a school or a some type of youth program but it's to you know give give organizations money to like have programs to get kids outside so for example like funding a an ice fishing day for kids Mm -hmm. or so to be on the lookout for those types of events happening and and with the dnr they have so one thing that you know even for me like i like to i enjoy fly fishing but even growing up like i you know my dad was a scientist so we would go out and we would electrofish and we would my dad fished a little bit and i would go with him and like throw out bobbers and stuff but like i was really intimidated by it like even now like being in like the fish world you know i fly fish a little bit but i don't do a lot of fishing and so i get intimidated sometimes but especially like the males like who are in my field who are big anglers and i'm like i i'm not even i that's not like what I, and part of it's just it's a lot to it's a lot to kind of take in especially if you don't know where to start and so there's a lot of programs that are trying to get people involved and get access to equipment and try to break down those barriers and um so the dnr has a lot of things like even if you look at their website for for hunting they've got um mentorship programs they've got like learn to hunt programming so you can if you've never done anything you can show up there and they'll kind of run you through the basics which i think is a huge thing for getting people kind of over that hurdle of feeling intimidated um and it's interesting actually so during the pandemic so i mean part of the reason that the dnr does this of course is that they raise revenue for conservation and management through the sale of hunting licenses um fishing licenses also excise taxes on um like fishing and hunting equipment and boats mm-hmm. and all that stuff. So it, it 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 serves them and all of us to have more people participating in this. Uh, and so um, one one thing that's interesting is in the pandemic. So when they when you look at the number of um, hunting um, or the number of um, hunting and fishing licenses that have sold, 
like among youth, they've almost doubled like wow. during the pandemic. So like, which is a really great sign that's saying that, I think it was among, oh gosh, how old do you have to be to get a license? Like 16, 15, 12. 12. You, yeah, I think, uh, I think, yeah, it might be 16, might be fishing. Okay, so is yeah. it, with that youngest demographic of where they actually have to buy a license for both hunting and angling, like the numbers, I mean, don't quote me on this, but they just about doubled over the pandemic. Um, and which is great news. I mean, that's awesome to have more people being recruited into that mm -hmm. um, type of pastime. Even myself, like over the years of working on trout streams, I feel like from the time I first started spending a lot of time on trout streams until now, I've seen a big uptick in the number of, um, especially fly fishermen and anglers from like the cities coming down here, <laughs> which on one hand is like, I think it's great because I don't, our, most of our streams don't have a lot of pressure I think they can withstand more pressure with fishing, even if anglers are taking the fish and keeping the fish. I think our streams can handle that. Um, so I'm kind of fine with it. I'm excited to see more people. Mm -hmm. But I know other people are like, oh, you know, just stay away. Yeah. Like, this is our best kept secret down here is all <laughs> yep. this amazing trout fishing right. that we have. Right. Now there's no fish in that water. <laughs> no. so. A great spot to go is white water. Yeah. Yeah, go to white right. water. Yeah. Campground there. Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, one other thing I, I always like to ask my guests, and uh, and Trevor, please, and, and Jen, pipe in both. Um, if you can think of a time when, when you were outside doing something you're passionate about, can you, can you, I'd love to hear, uh, can, can you please share a time when you were outside when time was just standing still? Do you want to go first? Hmm? Ladies first. Okay. Or? Well, okay, so this isn't... This is somewhat fish related, but not really. So I've, I've spent a lot of time um, in the rainforest doing work um, with students and with research. And I remember when I was in Belize in working at a field station, like in the middle of this very pristine, big tract of rainforest. And I was working on a river called the Bladen River, which is just beautiful. And um, it was sort of my first independent foray into field research so it was very stressful and it was right after I first met Trevor I think I was there about six months after I met Trevor and so Trevor came down to Belize with me to help out and um, it was shortly after he had left and I was kind of on my own and I would get up early in the morning and go down to the river and there was a little kind of a little crossing there and I would kind of hang out and one morning I saw like my first tapir which is a large mammal it looks like what a cross between like a like a i don't know like a hippo and a horse or something I don't oh, know. A rhino and rhino a horse. and a yeah, horse yeah. they're crazy yeah. been, they're, they've they're, been they're. there have been times when they've been pretty critically endangered and i think they're still very threatened if not endangered across most of central america and there was one just across like maybe 20 yards from me just hanging out on the edge of the stream and it was just like oh just surreal mm -hmm. and I mean, I've had a lot of very surreal moments in the rainforest, just being alone, you know, getting caught in the rain or just sitting and absorbing everything. But I think that was one of those moments where I was just like, where I wanted time to stand still. I just wanted to be like, I just wanted to watch that thing for days. So, so yeah, so it's aquatic related that I was doing aquatic research and I was sitting on a, on a river, but yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Not a, I've seen one in a zoo, but never, never in the wild. And I'm, yeah. man, that's pretty cool. Oh yeah, they're oh they're so cool. And it wasn't the last one I saw. So after mm -hmm. that, we actually saw them pretty frequently. But that was like kind of the cool 
thing about this place is it was such a large tract of rainforest that you would have these these types of organisms that need big undisturbed spaces in order to thrive and you would see stuff like that there that mm-hmm. like things like harpy eagles are there and just really cool stuff jaguars so, oh yeah lots of jaguar but so trevor what's yours oh it's not quite that exotic <laughs> actually it was right here on on garvin when i first started fly fishing um the frustration of not being able to cast and getting caught in the uh in the in the weeds and and snags and and feeling like i was just gonna break my fly rod over my knee (laughs) (laughs) you know pure frustration like this i'm done i'm not gonna do this anymore and uh, i'm kind of looking around and you know when you're on the on the stream and you see the like steam coming off the water because it's so cold and the air temperature is warm and the the jewelweed along the stream, the bright orange, and there's like a hummingbird flying around on the jewelweed, and I'm just like, why am I so mad about not being able to cast this rod to catch a trout? I'm out here in this beautiful spot, and I just slowed down, you know, took it easy, I made some casts. I, you know, I'm I'm out here to spend time, not not you know, be the best caster ever. I still didn't catch anything, but it was great. And it was like, I continued to fly fish and now. It's kind of I the mean, beauty of fly fishing, yeah, isn't it? That yeah. you're kind of. The spots, I mean, you can be places here in, in in this area on a trout stream and you're like, I'm I'm in Minnesota. This is this is crazy. I, you know, you've got a 50 foot cliff, you know, right down to the water and, and a just crystal clear pool. I mean, it, you don't feel like you're in minnesota or or it looks like somewhere else and yeah that's that's what i love the most about yep. you know, fly fishing around here i think every beginner fly fisherman can relate <laughs> to that scenario <laughs> especially around here i mean yeah. there's there's so much in your for your back has yeah. to get caught in and if you're not losing six flies when you're starting out you're not doing it right <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> man if you can fly fish here though oh yeah it's a great place yeah. to learn because it man it's it's hard it is yeah. a little technical yeah so one last little surprise segment. I didn't tell you about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I call it my this or that section. So it's uh, you'll get a choice of two, two topics. You pick whatever you like for whatever you like, or whatever sounds best first. Um, so there's about ten of them. We'll just blaze right okay. through them and then we'll wrap it up. Okay. Sound good. All right. So first one, river or creek? Creek. Prairie or forest? Oh. I love the. F- I mean, I love prairies, but I love forests. I would say forests. Forests, all right. Yeah. I, and and now I got to give you a little bit of a forewarning. I had uh, I had some help from some of our one of our mutual friends. Oh. So <laughs> so this is these are Uh-oh. he, he kind of helped me out here. Aldo Leopold or Rachel Carson? Oh, Rachel. Yeah, I mean, I love Aldo. But, oh, Rachel's such a gem. Yeah. Yeah. Helgramite or caddis? Caddis. I mean, Helgramite's bite. <laughs> <laughs> What about to hike or to bike? Um, equal. I, oh, you lately I've been, hike, uh, I've been a hiker lately. Like, I buy, oh, hike. All right. No, bike. No, <laughs> I, I don't know. It depends on the day. Today I hiked, so I'll say hike. Hike, all right. Sounds good. What about Italian or Mexican? Mexican. <laughs> <laughs> Lightning bug or butterfly? Lightning bug. 
And in the lab or in the field? Oh, field. Brown trout or brook trout? Oh, man. Oh, I'll say brown just because they're, oh, they're like they're brown. my bread and butter <laughs> right now. Like, that's what I've been doing work on. Oh. All right. What about a riffle or a pool? Riffle. All right. Oh. Well, good answers. I'm happy with them all. <laughs> all Trevor, right. did you differ on any of those? I think we're pretty aligned. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, thanks, guys. I really appreciate, yeah. appreciate you having me out here. It's been fun talking with you. I think uh, I'm going to... Winter is coming up on fly tying season, so I'm going to be filling my box with a lot yeah. more different things than I normally <laughs> oh, yeah. do. So cool. I want you to, to come up with the, uh, a snail fly. I'm going to figure okay. it out. <laughs> All right. Thank you, guys. Yeah.